through the list. Uh, some are engineers. Um, I see a developer there. There's a grocer. Uh, there's a contractor. Uh, there's a retired man. Uh, there's a principal of a school. There is a missionary. Uh, there's a merchant. They uh, come from a lot of different walks of life. They represent a lot of different uh, vocations. Five of them, you'll notice, are in what we call full-time Christian work. Claude Levitt is a missionary. Uh, David uh, Melhoff is the principal of the Christian school. And Don, Chris, and myself are all full-time pastors here at Cole Community Church. Now, uh, I want to talk to you this morning a little bit about elders and who they are and what they do and talk about the care and feeding of elders, how we can encourage them in their, in their task. I think I've mentioned before a friend of mine who's a rancher over on the east side of uh, the state of Washington. Uh, he's a uh, dedicated church grower and a man of remarkable tolerance, uh, wrote me a letter one time, and he said they had a new pastor, a new shepherd in their church. They said, I think we picked him a little green. Uh, he said, what they did is they sent us, he was, he was right out of seminary, and they said what they did is they sent us a do-it-yourself preacher kit, and we have to put him together. And I thought when I read that, that's wonderful, because so many churches just want to take them apart. Uh, what we want to do is to learn how to encourage the pastors in our congregation. And when I talk about pastors, as you'll see in a moment, I'm not talking about those that are in the so-called full-time Christian ministry, but all the elders, because all elders in this church are pastors. Now, let me tell you a little bit about uh, the concept of of elder, it, it's a it's an ancient hoary uh, tradition. Almost every culture in the ancient world had elders. Uh, they were the older, uh, wiser men in the community. They they knew the secrets. They passed on the traditions. They helped the younger generation to make their way through life without cracking up on on the rocks. That was their function. In some cases, they had political responsibilities, but by and large, they were, they were counselors. They were passing on the mysteries that had been passed on to them. If you read any of Robert Bly's works, then you know that he makes a great deal of the fact that, that each generation needs an older generation of wise people that can impart truth to them, teach them how to make their way through life successfully. That's what, that's what elders were. Babylonians had elders. The Syrians did. The Egyptians did. They're even mentioned in the Old Testament in the book of Genesis. So it's no surprise that Israel had elders, and so did the early church. They simply adopted the, uh, the culture of, of that time. Now, the New Testament writers refer to these elders in different ways. They, they call them elders, which is uh, a term that refers to the dignity of the office. They also refer to them as overseers. Uh, some of the older translations say bishops. But the word really means uh, to, to, to look over, to oversee. And as, as we'll see, this is not a matter of exercising 
discipline and harsh direction and that sort of oversight, but rather a matter of the care of people's souls. In that sense, they watch over people. They watch people's souls. They're in the business of soul-making. That's what an elder does. And finally, they're called uh, shepherds, interestingly enough. That's another ancient term that was used for leadership, and it's a wonderful term. It's freighted with all sorts of significance because shepherds feed sheep. The, the Hebrew word for shepherd, roi, means one who, who feeds, one who takes care of, one who leads the flock to uh, green pastures. And that word came over into the New Testament and was applied to elders. They're called shepherds. Uh, there's one passage in the New Testament in Acts 20 where Paul combines those two ideas. He gathers together the elders of the church in Ephesus and he says, keep watch over all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, be shepherds of the church of God which he bought with his own blood. It shows uh, the, the enormous price that God paid for the church and his love for the church and yet he's willing to turn over his church to a group of shepherds who attend his flock. They are under shepherds. So elders are shepherds. That's where our word pastor comes from. When Jerome wrote his uh, Latin Vulgate, which was his attempt to translate the scriptures into into street language, into the common language of, of the day, he used the Latin word pastor for shepherd. And our word pastor is an anglicized form of that word. A pastor is a shepherd. That's all. When we think of a pastor, we think of a, a professional clergyman, you know, someone with a turned around collar. But the word pastor is simply a shepherd. That's all. And all elders are shepherds. Shepherd. Now, now, not all the pastors in our church are elders, but all the elders in our church are looked upon as pastors. And we do not have any so-called head pastor. Our Lord is the only one who's worthy of that title. Peter says he is our chief shepherd, which being translated is, being translated is head pastor. Now, I bear that title simply because for years I was the, the senior staff pastor. But there is no one pastor who, or elder who dominates the elder board. We don't look at anyone as the CEO of this operation. No one person has the final word. That word is invested in uh, that authority is invested in the elder council. Now, uh, the, uh, again, the New Testament knows nothing of single-handed leadership. There are strong leaders in all of Scripture. There are men like Joshua and Moses, and, and there are women uh, that are outstanding in their leadership in the Old, in, in the old Testament, Huldah, the prophetess, and, and others. But... When you come to the New Testament, you don't find any one person dominating. As a matter of fact, though you have strong people like Paul, Barnabas, and and others, again, the authority is invested in a plurality of leaders. Every time you find a passage in the New Testament that refers to the elders, it refers to them as elders, plural. As a matter of fact, single-handed autonomous leadership is condemned. Uh, in the person of Diotrephes, for example, whom uh, the apostle says loves to have the preeminence. See, no one should have the preeminence. We, we operate in concert with one another you know, through a plurality of elders. 
Now, the question is, what in the world do elders do? Well, they, they care for your souls. That's what they're here for. They're not here to run the church. That's not what we're about. Our, our commission from the Lord is to watch over your souls. C.S. Lewis says that, um, that we are those particular people within the whole church who have been set aside to look after that which concerns us as creatures who are going to live forever. There are three passages of Scripture I'd like to call your attention to. You don't need to turn to them. Peter writes, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care. Whoever wrote Hebrews says, be persuaded by your leaders because they keep watch over you. That's the way the NIV puts it, the uh, NASB, which I think is the preferred translation in this case, is they watch over your souls. That's where I got that phrase that I used a moment ago. And uh, Paul says in Acts 20 to the elders of the church in Ephesus, keep watch over all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Elders have an, have an awesome task. They care for your souls. Our word care uh, comes from a Latin word cura that really has an undertone of cure as well as care. That's the idea of of ministering to people and helping them through their sin and their sorrow and helping them to understand the scriptures. Uh, learning together to discover the meaning of the word of God. Teaching people to pray. Teaching them to draw near to God. Guiding their progress toward godliness. See, that's the function of, of an elder. We're not here to just make political decisions. We're not here to run the church. I, I hear that. In fact, I've heard some of my colleagues say that. You know, I get so tired of having to run the church, and I just wince whenever I hear it because though there are administrative responsibilities that we have to take on, it, it's not our task to run the church as we would run Hewlett-Packard or any other organization. Our primary concern as elders, hopefully, is to care for your souls. You know, up until a uh, hundred years ago, that's what that's what elders did. That's what shepherds did. They they spent time in the Word and in prayer. On Sunday morning, they proclaimed the Word, but through the week, they uh, they 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 expanded on the Word through conversation. Paul, Paul has an interesting comment in Acts twenty. He says, "You you know what I was like when I was among you." I, I befriended you, I was with you, and I, and I taught you the word in public and in private, both proclamation and conversation. See, they did throughout the week what they did on Sunday morning. They taught the word to the body, and then through the week they met with people individually and in small groups, and they helped them to discover the meaning of scriptures and they, of the scriptures, and they taught them how to pray, and they helped them to draw near to God. See, that, that, was, that was their job. That's what they did. The early church faced the, the, the tension between trying to take care of administrative details and minister to souls. Uh, early on in Acts 6, Luke reports that some people came to the shepherds of that early church and said, we need somebody to take care of feeding the widows. It's a legitimate, wonderful thing to do, as we saw from last week's passage. Somebody has to do that. Somebody has to take care of the helpless and the needy. 
And the apostles said, all right, you appoint people to take care of that. As for us, we're going to give ourselves to the ministry of the word and prayer. That's our job. To teach the word. To help people discover the meaning of the word. To teach people how to pray. To help people draw near to God. To love him more. To help them deal with their sin and their suffering and their sorrow. That's our job as elders. You know, I, when I came to this church 15 years ago, I had no idea it would ever grow this large. I just I thought it would be very small, and, and that's what I wanted to spend my time doing. But I find that the larger church get, the more it, it becomes like one of these Rube Goldberg devices, you know, that kind of lumbers along and clanks and bonks, and there are wheels and gears and ecclesiastical wheels and gears and levers and pulleys and belts and and you know, and, and, and this this thing works, and it jerks, and and it burks, and and you, and you watch the end, you know, the little the little uh, conveyor belt at the end, and bonk, this little thing falls out that has absolutely no use at all. And uh, unfortunately, that can happen. You know, we can invest all of our time in, 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 in just keeping the thing greased, keeping the wheels running, keeping the levers pulled, and we forget what our fundamental task is which is to help people draw near to God. That's our passion. That's our vision as elders. That's what we want. That's what we want to be more than, than anything else uh, in the world. I saw a cartoon in Leadership Magazine this last week. It showed a pastor sitting up on the front steps of, of the church. And he was sitting in a chair there. And there was a barker down below in a straw hat and a striped suit and a cane. And he was saying, come and see our marvelous Pastor Bill, hear his sermons, watch him organize and run committees, gasp as he repairs and maintains the church single-handedly and so forth. You know, That was his pattern. Well, that, that's missing the whole point of what the shepherds of the church ought to be. No, they're, they're there to care for your souls, developing together with others a life of prayer, uh, guiding our growth. Uh, into maturity. So the question then becomes, how can we help them? How can we encourage elders in the task? You know, it's not easy. Um, eldering is is uh, very often a difficult task. So what can we do to encourage them? Uh, beleaguered, frightened, wearied, overburdened elders are a wasting asset. What can we do? To encourage them. Well, Paul tells us in this passage. Uh, I, when I come to a passage like this, I often, often think, uh, what in the world can I say about this passage that has any relevance, whatever, to the life of God's people? And I'm always reminded what Paul says. All Scripture is inspired of God. It's all equally inspired. It's all profitable for doctrine, proof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. Some passages speak straight to the heart. Other passages are addressed to, to the head, their instruction. And so I, I think this passage uh, partakes of, it has that, that element in it. It is primarily instruction to us as a body on the care and feeding of the elders in this church. I want to begin reading, uh, start reading with verse 17. Now I'm reading out of the New American Standard Bible. Some people asked me last week what version I'm using. That's the one I've chosen to go back to because I find myself always correcting the NIV, and I don't want to give you the impression that the text is unreliable. It's simply that the NIV, by choice, 
uh, was is much more of a paraphrase and much more readable than the NASB, but it is not as close to the text as the NASB. So uh, that's that's why I've chosen to read out of this text. Verse 17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his, of his wages. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all, so that the rest also may be fearful of sinning. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thus share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourselves free from sin, literally keep yourselves pure. And then, uh, I think this was, this was a uh, footnote or a note that Paul scrawled alongside uh, the manuscript. Still part of scripture, but not part of his argument at this point. No longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent, frequent ailments. That's still apostolic uh, counsel. But I think it's here because it, it is. Uh, it was necessary to qualify his statement, keep yourself pure. This is just my opinion, but I think Timothy was beginning to buy into the more aesthetic practices that, uh, that were acceptable in that culture, and he had become a total abstainer. And given the impure water uh, in that particular era, his stomach was beginning to hit, give him trouble, and so Paul was saying, when I talk about purity, Timothy, I'm not talking about your, your uh, penchant for abstinence, total, total, uh, being a teetotaler here. Drink a little wine for your stomach's sake. Uh, the scripture does not teach abstinence. It teaches moderation. And uh, Paul just inserts this here. Now, I simply say that so you'll understand the argument. He's here in order, uh, it's here to correct what I think was a misunderstanding on the part of, of uh, Timothy. And it uh, doesn't add anything to our uh, our passage particularly, but it probably added a great deal to Timothy's health. 24. Actually, the argument goes from verse 22 directly to 24. Keep yourself pure. The sins of some men are quite evident going before them to judgment. For others, their sins follow after. Likewise, also deeds that are good are quite evident, and those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. Four things that uh, I think we must do for our elders. First, we must honor them. Paul says in verse 17, let the elders who rule well be worthy of, of, of double honor. Pray for them. Encourage them. Uh, be persuaded by them, is the way Hebrews puts it. Uses the same term that uh, Peter uses when he talks about husbands that are unpersuadable, hard-headed, they're not teachable. It'd be easy to be entreated, as, as James says in Hebrew. Be teachable. See, let, let the elders teach you. Again, resistance uh, breaks a person's heart. Elders are not always right in what they teach. And it's, it's, it's perfectly okay to challenge any statement that's contrary to the Word of God. But to the extent that they are imparting the Word of God to us, we need to, 
We need to listen to them. Be persuaded by them. It's one of the ways we can honor them. Uh, to, to help them hold their arms up. I used last week the illustration of Moses, who was worn out, weary. And uh, Aaron and her found a rock for him to sit on, and they, they held, up, uh, held up their hands. Pray with them. They dropped by one of these elders' uh, offices. There are a whole bunch of you that work at Hewlett-Packard. We've got a number of elders uh, that, that work there. Drop by their office and ask them how they're doing and, and pray with them as well as uh, as pray for them. Uh, stand, stand beside them. Encourage them. Uh, the writer of Hebrews says, Be persuaded by your leaders so that their work will be a joy and not a burden. Well, that's of no advantage to you. As I say, beleaguered elders uh, are a disadvantage to us. Encourage them in their work. Now, that's, that's the first thing, uh, to respect them. Uh, as Paul puts it in 1 Thessalonians 5.12, Respect those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in highest regard because of, of their work. So honor them. Now, there are some that Paul says are worthy of double honor. That is, not only respect, but remuneration. Pay them, in other words. Now, let me issue a disclaimer before I start talking about this business of salary. I am very well taken care of by our elders here, so I'm not talking out of any personal need that I have. This is just a a matter of principle, so if we understand that, I, I feel free to move ahead here. Um, Paul, this is a scriptural warrant for full-time Christian service. There are certain people that we set aside to give their whole lives to the ministry of word and and the prayer. Now, this does not mean that they are a special category of elders in the sense that they have more authority, more power, uh, more control. That's not the issue at all. Certain elders volunteer their ministry and they support themselves. Other elders are set apart for the business of teaching the word in prayer. See, uh, Bible study is hard work. It's not, it's not only hard, it was not only hard work in the first century, it's hard, it may be even harder work in the 20th century because we have to recover the culture and the language and the background and the history and all of these things that were just second nature to people that were expounding the scripture at the time it was written. So uh, a good elder, a teaching elder, will spend uh, a great deal of time studying the word, prayerfully studying the word in order to impart it to the people. See, it's a time-consuming uh, process. As Richard Baxter, the old uh, Puritan, put it, pastors must not slightly slubber over their work. Uh, it's hard work, and and that's what Paul is is talking about here. Those who work hard are worthier of double honor. Uh, the word for work hard means hard work, that's all. And it is indeed hard work. Now, there are certain people that are set aside for full-time missionary activity. They go overseas and they give themselves to helping others discover the meaning of Scripture and, and teaching them how to pray and leading them on in their relationship with God. And there are those that do so here within within the body of Christ. Now, Paul adduces two uh, arguments for uh, for supporting certain people who give themselves to prayer and, and to the Word. He goes back into the Old Testament 
to the practice of not muzzling an ox when it when it threshes out the grain. It's a humane practice. Uh, oxen, as they threshed, uh, could uh, reach down and pick up a mouthful of, of grain. Made their labor with what worthwhile. Paul uses the same argument in 1 Corinthians 9. He says, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk? Do I say this merely from a human point of view? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? Paul asks. And Martin Luther, in his commentary on this passage, says, no, God's not concerned about oxen because oxen cannot read. Um, that's not why he put, put that provision in the law. It's there because God was setting the stage for those oxen who would uh, be able to gain from their threshing. The other argument that Paul uses here, interestingly enough, he does not bring forward our Lord's words in 1 Corinthians 9 because Luke had not been written yet. But by the time Paul wrote 1 Timothy, Luke was in, the gospel of Luke was in his hands. And uh, Luke says in chapter 10 that our Lord said, the labor is worthy of his hire. So here, Paul uh, not only goes back to Moses in the Old Testament for his authority, but also back uh, to Jesus. Now the question is, who is worthy of support? Those who rule well, he says. Those who understand that the task is the care of souls. No one ought to be supported who is doing it for money. Paul makes that very clear in another place. Uh, so does Peter in his passage on, on eldering. Uh, years ago, I heard Ray Steadman say that he would never do anything for numbers, praise, or money. And I often thought that is a wonderful way to start out ministry. No elder worth his salt will do anything for money or for prestige. Uh, he will do it only because the Lord has called him. And so Paul says if, if a man is caring well for the souls of others. It's, it's, it's already been established that he loves people and he cares about them and he wants to see them grow in, in truth and faith and grace. And, and that, that qualifies him. But there's another qualification. He is a teacher who works hard. In other words, he has teaching gifts that's recognized by the body. And so uh, that person is supported so he can invest a suitable amount of time and study and prayer, and then he can impart uh, that truth uh, to others. So as I say, this, this is the scriptural warrant for those that are designated as full-time shepherds. This does not set them apart in any special category. It does not put them on a pedestal or make them of, of more importance than any other elder. It is simply... Uh, a warrant for setting aside certain people to teach the truth to others. Now, the second thing to do is to protect them. Protect them. The first thing is to honor them. Secondly, protect them. Paul writes, Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three uh, witnesses. That's because those who operate in the public arena, and here I'm thinking of all the all the elders are always subject to misunderstandings and, and misjudgments. They have to say hard things. Uh, they have to rebuke people. 
Uh, they have to teach on, on topics that are, that are difficult. They will make mistakes, and their mistakes are far more prominent than others. They will sin because they're human beings, and their, their sins become much more apparent because they sin in, in the public uh, arena, and they pick up a lot of enemies along the way. Uh, one of Winston Churchill Hill's colleagues uh, once said, doesn't it impress you, Winston, that 10,000 people will come to, to, to hear you speak and uh, his response was no, because ten times that many would come to see me hanged. And <laughs> I think all of us feel that way from 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 time to time. Uh, the only way to avoid criticism and reproach is to never do anything significant. Uh, Charles Briggs uh, wrote one time: If your ambition is to avoid the troubles of life, the recipe is simple. Shed your amb- ambitions in every direction, cut the wings of every soaring purpose, and seek a little life with the fewest contacts and relations. Tiny souls can dodge through life. Bigger souls are impeded on every side. As soon as men and women begin to enlarge their lives, their resistances are multiplied. See, that's why Paul says, be persuaded. See, don't resist them. They may be wrong. They're there's a track to follow if they are wrong, and we'll talk about that in a moment. They're not always right, but don't fight them. Don't resist them. They be persuaded. So important. Because melancholy, beleaguered leaders are simply of no benefit to the church. See? I, you know, I, uh, because of Carolyn and me, uh, our work in uh, Idaho Mountain Ministry, we, we run into some of these pastors young men in these churches where they are overworked and over-criticized and underappreciated, put on pedestals and stranded up there, given every conceivable job that there is to do in the church and uh, never encouraged, you know, in any of their of their tasks. And criticism, believe me, is like acid rain. It just erodes away their desire to serve. And I don't know how many young men I've seen bail out of the ministry in the last few years because they simply could not take it anymore. They, Paul says, don't, don't do that. See, don't take your leaders apart. Put them together. Encourage them. See, uh, protect them. Particularly when they're slandered. Because slander will occur. There, there are all sorts of reasons that, uh, that people will, uh, will attack the leadership. All kinds of, uh, Dependencies and baggage that they bring into every uh, relationship, and those can become the reason, uh, the unseen reason for uh, for criticism. Uh, and opposition is especially painful when it has to do with someone's character and motivation. And unfortunately, that is often where the criticism. Uh, resides. It's in the person's motivations and their character. Okay? Now we can always criticize a person's performance, but we should never, never criticize anyone's motives. This is true not only for elders, but just in our relationships with one another. Uh, you don't know a person's motives. You cannot possibly know why they do what they do. See? And to attack a person's motivation and character is to attack what they are. And for elders that are in ministry, what they are is what they bring to the ministry. And so when you attack a person's character and assassinate them in that way, you're really undermining the, the very basis of ministry. If they're wrong, as we'll see, we should go and, and correct them. 
but uh, we should never, uh, wrong in terms of their behavior, but we should never uh, attack their motives. Uh, Paul says, puts it this way, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will bring to light the hidden motives of the heart. Then everyone will receive his or her praise from the Lord, you see. So uh, if, if, if an accusation is tendered against an elder, or if that matter, if an accusation is tendered against anyone in the church, the thing you and I ought to do is to say, well, let's immediately go to that person and let's talk to him about that issue, you see. And uh, if they listen to us, then we've gained our brother. They, they, they need to at least have an opportunity to respond to the accusation. If they don't listen, then as Matthew 18 tells us, we need to go and get two or three more and bring them to that person okay, and confront them again with that issue. If they don't listen to that person, then uh, to that, that small group of people, then we need to take it to the elders, see, and as as Paul goes on to say, if, the discip- if discipline needs to take place, then the elders need to rebuke that person before the whole congregation so that all may be warned. But there is due process. What often happens is an accusation comes and it's never answered. It just kind of filters out through the whole body. And, and, and the person accused never has a chance to confront that issue. And it just decimates their desire to go on after a while, say. So Paul is saying there's a way to deal with your discomfort. If your leader is not doing what's right, you go straight to that person. And if there are not two or three witnesses, then they are to be protected. Protected from misjudgment, from misunderstanding, and from slander. Uh, I am running out of time. But, oh no, that's right, that clock is wrong. I'm not, okay. I have five minutes, so hang with me. I accused, I accused Don of doing that the other day, or a little while ago, because that keep me in line here. Jonathan Edwards, this country's greatest theologian, served a church for 23 years, and he became concerned about a number of young people in his church who were living dissolute lives, and he went to confront them, and people began to gossip about him, and he was, he was thrown out of his ministry. He went off, as you know, to then to be a missionary to other outcasts, to the to the Indians of uh, the uh, eastern seaboard. But after 23 years of service, he was thrown out because his elders did not protect him against the slander of certain people who were angered because he, he confronted them with their sin. All I'm saying is that when there is an accusation against any elder, it, and I don't know how to say this and others say it, it is dead wrong to gossip about that uh, that act of criticism to any body, that is sinful. God hates gossip. And it is the thing that will destroy a church faster than anything. I have seen more churches divided and blown apart by gossip than any other sin. And so if you have an accusation against any elder in this church, you need to go straight to that elder. And if he will not listen to you, then take two or three. Hopefully he will listen. Because no one is ought to be teaching who's not teachable. But if he will not listen, then you take two or three. And if he still doesn't listen, then you take it to the elders. But you must not gossip about that person. It is terribly destructive. Now, that's the second thing, is to, uh, is to, uh, res- to protect them. Uh, the third thing is to discipline them, and I'm not going to take time to talk about uh, 
that particular aspect of uh, Paul's charge. Uh, he just says, those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all. Elders do sin. Uh, to err is uh, human. We, uh, we are all human beings. We will sin. But if we persist in sin, then we need to be disciplined and corrected before the, uh, the entire con- uh, congregation. There are two requirements. Discipline can only be applied on the evidence of two or three witnesses and in the face of ongoing sin. We're not talking here about sin from which an elder repents, but rather sin in which he persists. There are some dangers in discipline. The dangers are pre- prejudice and partiality. Prejudice, of course, is bias against someone. Partiality is a bias toward them. So we need to do what we do without fear and without favoritism. The fourth thing we need to do is wait for them. Wait for them. Honor them, protect them, discipline them, and wait for them. Uh, Paul puts it this way. Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thus share responsibility for the sins of others. The sins of some men are quite evident, going before them to judgment. For others, their sins follow after. Likewise, also deeds that are good are quite evident, and those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. Uh, John Wooden says that uh, character is what you are. Reputation is what people think you are. And sometimes the two do not coincide. It takes a while for our character to catch up to our reputation. So what Paul is saying is wait. Wait for people to mature to the place that they can can be moved into a, a position of leadership. See, that's what this body provides. It provides a secure place where men can grow toward maturity, where they can be observed over a period of time, where they can use their gifts in a protected environment, where they can be cared for and ministered to and and mentored and nurtured to the point that they grow into into leadership. Character takes time. We're not talking here about ability to run things. So the fact that a man is a manager of a of his plant does not qualify him to be an elder. There are character issues that are that are really central. The degree to which the eldership of a body of Christians is godly is the degree to which that body will be godly, and therefore it is absolutely essential that we wait for men to to grow in in grace and to grow in power, if I can put it that way. Power is simply the capacity to influence others. And people... All of us, men and women, gain power by focusing on our inner lives. Not a matter of our office. It is, as I've said before, it is a matter of our obedience uh, to God. So, in conclusion, let me say, elders need four things. If we want to help them, pull them together, help them to be what God has called them to be, they need honor, they need protection. They need discipline. They need time to mature. Or put another way, they need the affirmation that honor confers, the freedom that protection provides, the humility that discipline confers, and the mature character that waiting produces. That's the way to look after our leaders. Okay, let's pray.
Father, we we recognize the responsibility that we as elders have. And all of us, even elders, are subject to the elders. We recognize how how much we need to uh, need to grow. How much change needs to take place in our own lives. How much movement toward God needs needs to happen. We all need guides, someone to help us along the way, some some older, more mature person to move us toward maturity. Lord, may we encourage our leaders and submit to them and uh, learn from them and grow under their tutelage. Lord, I pray for our elders. I, I know that uh, Satan is, uh, is attacking on every front in their homes, their health, uh, their, their jobs. Um, he is a relentless foe. Lord, may we encourage them, lift up their arms, pray for them, uh, move in alongside, give the encouragement that's necessary for their leadership. These things we ask in Jesus' name.